Welcome to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Rick, we've got so much to cover today. We've got to get going. Our broadcast partners are standing by. Ken Timmerman, David Dolan, Paul Scharf, and Dr. Paul Weaver. We're all on the program today and the Legacy Series, beginning a new series, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung in the book of Ezekiel. Rick, let's get started with Ken Timmerman. Well, that's right, Jimmy. I have Ken Timmerman with us. He is our frequent contributor when we talk about geopolitics. He's an author and an analyst. You can find out more about him, sign up for his newsletter, see the books that he's written by going to his website at KenTimmerman.com. Ken, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Rick. It's always a pleasure. Well, Ken, as we get started this week, we're going to take a look at several different areas around the world. But let's start with the Russia-Ukraine crisis. We're two years in now. We're just coming up on that anniversary. What is the status there on that war that is taking place there in Europe? Well, the stalemate appears to have been broken by this massive Russian offensive that drove the uh, Ukrainians out of an area near Kharkiv. It has allowed the Russians to seize a little bit more territory into Ukraine, and they just barely got their forces out. They were being encircled by the Russians, and apparently the new Ukrainian chief of staff was okay with getting his forces out and not letting them be butchered. His nickname, remember, had been The Butcher, but in this case, he seemed to not to have lived up to that nickname. Otherwise, we have interviews both by Putin and Zelensky. Zelensky uh, spoke with Brett Baer of Fox News uh, close to the front lines on Thursday, or at least the interview aired on Thursday night. And for the first time, Zelensky actually opened the door to negotiations, just as Putin had done in his interview with Tucker Carlson. So there may be some movement on the diplomatic front. And I've got to say, the only reason there is movement on Zelensky's side, at least, is because the U.S. Congress has been pressuring him over the arms deliveries. They've been holding up this $60 billion arms package, and that has caused Zelensky to actually think about coming to the negotiating table. By the way, this is the tactic that President Trump had been talking about many months ago when he said, I can bring peace in 24 hours. So that pressure does seem to be working on Zelensky. Well, Ken, there's certainly not a whole lot of great options here. We know that Putin is an authoritarian dictator. We know that there's a lot of corruption in Ukraine. Coming to the table to work out a peace deal is really the best option available, isn't it? I believe so. And many other commentators have said that for years. You know, I work with the American Foreign Policy Institute, crafting policies for the next Republican administration that will come in, we hope, in 2025. And Ukraine is really right at the top. And we believe that, you know, there has to be a negotiated solution. There's there's going to be some form of territorial compromise at the end. Uh, Ukraine cannot hold on to these hopes, for example, of maintaining its control over Crimea. Crimea has not historically been a Ukrainian territory. It was ceded to them at the end of the Soviet Union. So there's going to have to be some wiggle room on both sides and concessions from both sides. But clearly on the battlefield, neither side is going to win at this point. It is pretty much of a stalemate with Russia having the upper hand in that stalemate. There are fears that I've heard coming out in the news this week that Vladimir Putin may look at another land grab going after another country. That's Moldova. Is that something that you think could happen? 
Uh, this is a long shot, but it's something that is being talked about. For a number of years, there has been a breakaway province called Transdenistria along the Ukrainian border. Remember, Moldova is just to the west of Ukraine. It borders down on the Black Sea. It's just west of Odessa. And this is where many people, including friends of mine, fled Ukraine in the early weeks of the war in 2022. So there's this thin strip of territory. It's only a couple of kilometers wide, but probably 60 to 100 kilometers long. It's right along that border across the Dniester River. And it has been declared itself independent from Moldova for something like 20 years. The Russians have recognized it, but nobody else has recognized it. And on February 28th, so just in a couple of days from now, the Transdniestrian Congress is having a meeting at which some people believed they will announce a call for Russia to annex them. And the very next day, Putin plans to give a speech. He has 2,000, quote, peacekeepers inside Transnistria today. There could be more of these little green men, the Martians that uh, first went into eastern Ukraine, into Donetsk and Luhansk province many, many years ago in 2014. You could have a similar scenario to what happened in 2014, a so-called rebellion by groups inside this territory, then calling on Russia for assistance. And I think that is something that will get NATO very concerned, very worried, because it shows that Putin's territorial ambitions are not just restricted to parts of Ukraine. That is something to be concerned about and something we'll keep an eye on. But let's continue to talk about Russia, but their relationships, their allies. This war has certainly brought them closer to their allies. We talk about Russia and China, but certainly Russia and Iran. And now the United States is looking to impose new sanctions on Iran for backing Russia's attack on Ukraine. Well, good luck with that. Uh, the um, the <laughs> sanctions that have been in place uh, for four years have not done much uh, under the Biden administration to deter Iran from anything. In fact, their oil exports, which remain under U.S. sanctions, those sanctions have not been lifted since Biden came into office. Uh, when he came into office, Iran was exporting 400,000 barrels of oil a day. This past year, they exported 1.5 million a day to China alone. So our sanctions have not been enforced, possibly by order of the State Department and the White House. So for them to announce new sanctions, frankly, sounds to me uh, a bit uh, fantastic. This said, Rick, let's get back to the real key thing here, and that is this Russia-China-Iran alliance. That is very real. Those three powers are absolutely growing closer together every day, military cooperation as well as diplomatic and economic exchanges. So that is, I think, what we need to keep our focus on. Uh, the U.S. Is, is trying to gesticulate here, but I don't think these new U.S. sanctions will have much impact. Certainly seems that that alliance is as strong as it has ever been and continuing to grow. Well, talk a little bit about Iran now as we transition to the Middle East. And we're, we look at these reports coming out of Israel that they are running out of patience with Iran because they keep on giving weapons to those Iranian proxies that are then being used to attack Israel. 
Well, you know, this is an extraordinary situation. After the 2006 war, which I covered for Newsmax in northern Israel and along the Lebanese border, the UN Security Council passed Resolution 1701, which declared a UN-patrolled security zone up past the Litani River. It uh, obligated Hezbollah to get out of that area, to withdraw all of its militiamen and its weapons. They did none of that. And the Iranians continued to flout that same UN Security Council resolution with these ongoing arms shipments to Hezbollah, both directly and through Syria. The Israelis have really exhibited extraordinary patience, Rick, frankly. And uh, I think it's just a matter of time before they strike Hezbollah much more vigorously, going after these arms shipments as they have done regularly, but I think also going after the command centers of Hezbollah inside South Lebanon. I certainly agree with that. And we'll talk about that more with Dave Dolan next in the Middle East News Update. But putting on your analyst hat, you have a wide range of experience. Ken, I would like to talk to you about Prime Minister Netanyahu of Israel's. He has made a speech this week where he talked about the day after Hamas and what Israel needs to see from the area of Gaza. You've been in Israel recently. You're an analyst who's very familiar with these types of situations. Can you let us know what you thought about that speech and what Israel is going to need to see in Gaza going forward? Well, actually, the speech was pretty much what I had expected him to lay out for the day after Gaza. This has been these are measures which have been talked about for some time. I wrote about them in my policy piece for the America First Policy Institute at the end of January. So a month ago, we had published that. Uh, Israelis insist on having complete security domination of Gaza absolutely understandable. They also insist on demilitarizing the territory, also understandable. They want to have a security buffer between Gaza and Israel. The U.S. is pushing back against that because the territory itself is not very big, but that's going to happen. They cannot allow the Gazan population to get that close to the border with Israeli settlements. They're also going to have some form of Palestinian governments. They claim that they're going to look for Palestinians with no terror ties. Good luck on that, but that's what they say. And uh, they will put those people in charge of running the civilian administration in Gaza. You know, Rick, I wrote about a, a much earlier attempt 40 years ago called the Village Leagues in my book, And the Rest is History. The Israelis have long looked for Palestinian partners. They've always been looking for Palestinian partners and they've always been frustrated. And when they do find them, what happens, and this is what I wrote about in And the Rest is History, the Palestinians themselves rise up and murder them. They murder the people who were cooperating with Israel. They call them collaborators, and that's the end of that. So this is going to be a very difficult effort. The most difficult piece of it will be finding those Palestinians willing to work with Israel and willing to govern that ungovernable terrorist stronghold. Excellent analysis, Ken, as we look at that situation and what could be the day after for Israel and Hamas. Well, one final question. We've only got a second here, but uh, we talked a little bit earlier about that Russia-Iran-China alliance, China in the news this week for a hacking scheme that they put together. Uh, absolutely. You know, what we're learning, first, it was a leak of documents, uh, something like 500 technical documents that showed this private Chinese company working to hack more than a dozen governments around the world, including the government of Pakistan, by the way, very unusual because Pakistan is an ally of China. But what's happening here, Rick, is that the Chinese Communist Party and the security agencies in China have privatized their hacking efforts, their hacking efforts of foreign governments and foreign countries. 
countries. The one thing that they want to do for sure is to track dissidents, their own dissidents who are living overseas, but they are also penetrating U.S. security agencies. They are uh, penetrating our national nuclear labs. They are spying on high-tech companies here in the United States. And it's being done by thousands of private companies who then get rewarded by the Chinese government for what they've done. So the government then can say, oh, well, we're not involved with this. This is all private people. And of course, then they reward them. So the Chinese have let a thousand flowers bloom to borrow a phrase from the previous communist rulers to hack on us, to spy on us and to track their citizens overseas. Author and analyst Ken Timmerman reporting on geopolitical affairs. Ken, thanks so much. Thanks so much, Rick. God bless. Great job as always, Ken. We've got to take a break. And uh, David Dolan with our Middle East News Update up next, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. I'm Ruth Kramer with Mission Network News. Tomorrow marks two years since Russian troops invaded Ukraine, launching the deadliest war in Europe since World War II. Russia controls roughly a quarter of Ukraine today and plans to take even more territory in the coming months. Meanwhile, Ukraine struggles to recruit soldiers at home and help from abroad. Transworld Radio's Alanka Stevenson says, It's been two years in and people are just tired and a lot of times just feeling the fatigue and apathy and despair that there's no end in sight. TWR has been broadcasting the hope of Christ on multiple channels since the war began. The team visits war-torn communities to talk with affected pastors and Christians, connecting Ukrainians across the airwaves. Please pray for their continued protection. So a couple of days ago, there was a bomb that fell not too far from the office. Nobody was hurt or, or anything was damaged, but it is very close and it just reminds them of the dangerous times they live in. And approximately 50 million people in the United States are addicted to some type of tobacco product. The Bible is clear that Christians aren't to let anything in the world master them, but some people have taken up smoking and can't let it go. Brandon Bauer with The Lighthouse says, We would consider nicotine addiction a mastery of our hearts. But scripture says that God has some guardrails in our life designed to protect us for our good, for his glory. So when a Christian steps out of these guardrails, then we see sin enter. And at the Lighthouse, we really talk about those hard issues that are driving the sinful behavior. The Lighthouse helps people in addiction apply biblical principles to their struggles. So if you or someone you know is struggling with any type of addiction, reach out for hope and help from God's Word. We'll connect you at missionnews.org. Thanks for listening to Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. We're listener-supported by people just like you. So by giving to Mission Network News, you enable us to keep the stories of God's kingdom coming. And together, the Great Commission happens. Look for links at missionnews.org. I'm Ruth Kramer. Welcome back to Prophecy Today Radio, the program that looks at current events in the light of Bible prophecy. Well, this is the portion of our program that we call our Middle East News Update. We look at news coming out of the Middle East in general, Israel in particular. To do that, we have our good friend, journalist Dave Dolan with us. Dave, thank you for being with us. You're welcome, Rick. Well, David, you have been keeping us updated on what is taking place in Israel with the war with Hamas and the potential escalation elsewhere. What's the latest this week? Well, Rick, the war continues both in the south, in the Gaza Strip, further south in the Red Sea, and to the north in Israel and in Syria and Lebanon. We had major activity on all those fronts, which I can go into in a second. But we also had upgraded, I should say, more sustained negotiations going on over the potential release of the hostages and a ceasefire 
from Israel's side. Those took place during the week in Cairo, where the senior Hamas leader Hania took part. Israel then sent a delegation over the weekend, actually uh, yesterday, but they're going to be meeting after the Sabbath in Cairo with officials there. And then we had another major parlay in Paris on Friday, including the CIA chief, the head of the Israeli Mossad and Shimbet Secret Services, and senior member of the Qatari uh, government as well, discussing, and uh, Egyptian leaders too, discussing the possibility of a hostage deal. But no announcement of any conclusion to that. Of course, we know that uh, it was rejected last week by Israel, the earlier proposal. Hamas wanted at least a four-month ceasefire and wanted a 10-to-1 release of their jailed prisoners to every Israeli hostage released. And, of course, uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu called that a total non-starter and ridiculous. So it'll have to be better terms, but it is looking, people are saying, like Hamas is really trying to prevent this final phase of the war. Israel again said this week that it will go into the Rafah neighborhood, or I should say city, really. It's got hundreds of thousands of refugees in it and around it right now from the north. It will go in there by Ramadan, which begins two weeks from today, Rick, if the hostages are not released by then or a deal is not concluded, at least, for their release. So we're coming down to the wire there. Meanwhile, as I said, heavy fighting in Gaza, especially there in the south. Uh, We had uh, more Israeli uh, evidences of Israeli prisoners there, hostages there, uh, the drugs that uh, Qatar arranged to be sent to over 40 hostages needing medications apparently did get to them, and that was the reported trigger for resuming these talks, Rick, that are going on in the north, heavy fighting, more uh, Hezbollah attacks into northern Israel. Israel struck another senior Hezbollah leader, the commander, actually, of the Hardo area that's just north of the Israeli border. And uh, there is indications, the IDF said, that Hezbollah has pulled back some of its forces from the actual border, but they continue to launch attacks every day, and Israel striking back. And during the week, Rick, holding a major naval exercise, the IDF did right off the coast of northern Israel and south Lebanon, clearly showing the Hezbollah group that they're there, they're ready to fight if they have to, and um, prepared for it. Well, David, I want to talk to you about the war in the north in just a second. But before I do, Prime Minister Netanyahu laid out a plan this week about what life will be like after Hamas, after the war. Can you talk about that? Well, yes. And it was the first time, Rick, that the Netanyahu government has released Uh, such a report. Uh, There's been a lot of speculation, of course, a lot of talk from the nations, two-state solution, all these different things, and individual comments on that. But this was a formal paper put together, presented by the government to the security cabinet to review it, discuss it. It hasn't been approved yet, but it looks at the immediate future, Rick, and the intermediate after the end of the war, and then a longer term. And what it uh, basically says is there will be a demilitarized Palestinian area, not a state, but an area in Gaza completely demilitarized that Israel will control the security of. 
It will have a buffer force uh, stationed along the southern border of Gaza with Egypt and, of course, along the eastern border with Israel. And by the way, Rick, it was announced by the IDF that the residents of 15 Israeli communities that had been evacuated along with several others uh, after the massacre of October 7th, that they could now return safely to their home. But of course, in the north, that's not the case. Still, some 80,000 residents in other parts of the country not able to go home. And a house was hit up there during the week uh, by a rocket. But uh, that's the idea. It also says that the Palestinian Authority will not be the governing authority in Gaza because it uh, supports terrorism. It pays off the families of terrorists. Uh, as for a state, a Palestinian state, that's something that's way too premature now to even think about. And it would be a reward for this terrorist attack to uh, even talk about that at this stage. So that's Israeli's starting position. But of course, the PA made a statement Friday rejecting it totally saying it's uh, not going to happen that way. We are going to have a Palestinian state in both Gaza and the West Bank, Judea and Samaria, and reiterating that Jerusalem, East Jerusalem, will be its capital. So as we have always been, the two sides are quite far apart, Rick, and it doesn't look like any um, outline of that is going to stick or at least be accepted by the nations. But Israel does seem determined to keep at least the Gaza Strip demilitarized, ruled, it says, by local Palestinians that have some experience in governance, but that are not affiliated with either of the two major terror groups uh, that operate in Gaza. So um, that's the outline. We'll see where it goes. We certainly will. I spoke with Ken Timmerman before I spoke with you, Dave, and we talked a little bit about Israel beginning to get upset about Iran continuing to provide weapons to Hezbollah. You talked a little bit about the escalation that continues in the north. How much longer can this go on and what role is Iran going to play in either pushing the proxy Hezbollah or holding them back for a future escalation in the north? Well, Rick, to your last question first, the very fact that Hezbollah is being massively, uh, the Israelis say, resupplied every day by Iran indicates that they're not afraid of this force being unleashed, or maybe they're even planning for it to be unleashed. Uh, that was the Israeli foreign minister presented a report to the UN saying that the air activity bringing in weapons and the ground uh, movements as well has uh, noticeably increased. And of course, Israel's been striking once again near Damascus this week and other positions of the uh, terrorist groups that are up there. But it doesn't look like Hezbollah really wants uh, peace here. It doesn't look like Iran wants peace. And Israel, the reports go, will rest a little bit if there's a ceasefire. We'll let its soldiers rest. So that's the situation, Rick. And it just looks like Israel will then go in after a bit of a rest, will then go in and push Hezbollah out and do the same thing, basically, as it did to Hamas. But of course, not in the same way, because Hezbollah is about a third of the Lebanese population are Shiites, and not all of them even support Hezbollah, so maybe a quarter of the country does. But their positions, and especially their military positions, they have an extensive tunnel network also, like Hamas does. In fact, more advanced, it's believed, in South Lebanon. Israel knows where that is. It knows where the shafts are into it. So they will basically focus on that and try to at least they're not going to eliminate Hezbollah, they know that, but at least weaken it to the point where the people of the north can go home 
and have another maybe decade or two of rest. Of course, the Lord's coming back before then, but uh, they're not talking about that. Well, David, one final question before we let you go. We just have a minute here, but you mentioned earlier that uh, Ramadan is two weeks away. With this war continuing, there has been talk in Israel of restricting the Muslim access to keep incidents down. Can you talk a little bit about this and that hot spot of the world, the Temple Mount? Yeah, Rick, they've done this a number of times over the years during uh, Ramadan and during other Muslim festivals where the idea is that the Netanyahu government proposed hasn't been approved yet, but to basically forbid anyone under a certain age, male, under usually it's age 28 or 30 or something like that, from going up to the Temple Mount because, of course, those are the guys that mostly start the riots, that mostly carry on the riots and cause the trouble. So women would be allowed, older men would be allowed, young Muslims would be allowed, just not males between, let's say, 18 and 28. So I think it's a wise proposal, frankly, but of course it's a very controversial one, and they haven't done it in previous years, but they haven't been in a full war in previous years as they are right now. And of course, the Muslims are calling this the Al-Quds Storm, so it's named after the Temple Mount, their name for the Temple Mount, so we'll have to see what happens, but hopefully a quieter Ramadan this year, because unlike last year, it doesn't coincide with Passover that only comes at the end of April this year. Well, David, as we know, the book of Zechariah says that the nation of Israel, specifically the city of Jerusalem and the Temple Mount there, is going to be a focus of the world, a cup of trembling, if you will, in the end times, and it certainly is trending that way. David, we appreciate all that you do keeping our listeners informed. We look forward to talking to you again next week. Thank you, Rick. God bless. We're going to take a break right now, but when we come back, we'll have Paul Scharf from Friends of Israel, Dr. Paul Weaver from Dallas Theological Seminary, talking about the teaching on the kingdom from the book of Matthew, and of course, the Legacy Series with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung. That's all ahead right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Kramer with Mission Network News. Targeted Israeli airstrikes hit southern Lebanon as the Gaza War grinds on and threatens to expand. At least 83,000 people have fled inland from the Lebanese-Israeli border, but Lebanon's caretaker government won't declare a state of emergency that leaves nonprofits like Triumphant Mercy Lebanon without resources to care for those in need. Consider supporting TM Lebanon's efforts at our website and ask God to strengthen gospel workers and give them wisdom as they provide care in the name of Jesus. Meanwhile, Transform Iran celebrates God's faithful work in the lives of Iranians in 2023. Lana Silk with Transform Iran says there were more than 178,000 unique users across their websites last year. Transform Iran provides media resources for seekers as well as believers who need discipleship and Bible training and much more. Iran is a land of gospel opportunity. Find your place in the story at missionnews.org. Mission Network News is service of One Way Ministries. I'm Ruth Kramer. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with my brother Rick, we examine current events in the light of God's prophetic word. And I'm always amazed on how the programs play out. Well, we use world events to help us uh, determine where we focus on nations, world leaders, all of those that pertain to Bible prophecy or some sort of prophetic event that's going to take place in the future. And, of course, uh, as longtime listeners know, we focus on the Jewish people. 
Well, good friend of ours that, uh, you know, I was just talking to him, <laughs> Paul Scharf. Paul, welcome back to the program. Thank you, Jimmy. Great to be back with you. Yes, sir. And, you know, this article that you wrote, it's taken us a while to get through it, but I like doing it in bite-sized pieces so that people yeah. can digest it easily and understand. And, you know, so let's continue on. On this article, yes. again, it will be on our website. You'll have it, uh, and, and later on, we'll give some information on where they can find more of your material. But yes. as we look at the current situation, and we just got done talking with David Dolan and our update on the Middle East and our Middle East news update, uh, the current conflict in Israel is related to all that lies ahead. And you and I both firmly believe that. We have we were taught by men that firmly believe that. If you understand correctly Bible prophecy, you know that the Jewish people are directly involved with all the prophecies ahead, correct? Right. Yes, Jimmy, it's so important to understand what's going to happen in Israel because that tells us what's going to happen in the whole world. Israel is the biblical center prophetically of the whole world yes and so we want to since the attacks that took place on october 7th and we've been focusing on that because i believe that that's one of those mileposts in history 1948 yeah. uh, 1967 when we talk about in the six-day war when we talk about uh, for instance, Donald Trump, you know, proclaiming Jerusalem as the rightful capital of the Jewish people. I mean, those are moments in history that we are witnessing and we see events that take place. And October 7th certainly is one of those points in history that we are following. So, so far we've discussed a sudden disappearance. Of course, that is the rapture of the church. The sages of divinity, which uh, I love how you use alliteration, and Rick and I certainly like alliteration. And so the sages of divinity, which will be the two witnesses and uh, that will be preaching in the streets of Jerusalem during the first three and a half years of the tribulation mm -hmm. period. We talked about a signing with death, and that has to, to relate to the Antichrist confirming a peace agreement with the nation of Israel that... That really starts the clock ticking on the tribulation right. period. And then we thought we would continue on today, and we want to look at spiritual delusion. Talk to me mm. about that. Well, Jimmy, it doesn't take much imagination, does it, to see how we could transition from where we are today in terms of delusion and deception to what it will be like in the days of the tribulation. Um, you know, the Apostle Paul gave an interesting command to the church for the church age, to the church people at Thessalonica, when he said in Second Thessalonians 2, 3, this whole great chapter that relates to tribulation events, but he's talking about their living right now where they were. Uh, he says in verse 3, Let no one deceive you by any means. That would be a great verse for anyone listening if they don't get mm. anything else that we're talking about mm. to take that with them today. Let no one deceive you by any means. My goodness, can you imagine how many different ways there are that people are being deceived today? Yes, by and, Satan. By yes. Satan, correct? I mean, he's the master well, deceiver. <laughs> that's right. Through, uh, through his work and his influence uh, demonically and certainly among humanity and there are so many means of deception i jimmy i'm just astounded and think of what our young people are facing in terms of 
just incredible temptation uh, and dealing with issues that uh, that you and I never thought of when we were, you know, of those ages. And and the fact is, one of those areas in which they're being called to be deceived is this whole area of really being being led to hate the Jewish people, to hate Israel. Uh, they're being deluded. They're being deceived. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is a major influence that we know is going to grow into the days of the tribulation when finally Second uh, Thessalonians 2.11, to stay in that same context for a moment, says that God will send a strong delusion to the people of the world. Um, now, I believe that's in a certain context that relates to events at the middle of the tribulation, mm-hmm. but it, it also could be applied generally to what's going to happen progressively throughout that time of tribulation. It will be a a season of incredible satanic, as you said, deception. Yes. And when you look at Matthew chapter 24, which the Lord, his own words pertaining to this time in the future, deception is mentioned five times in the first couple of verses. Uh, So we do know that that is something to be very aware of. Well, let's talk about satanic desolation. Right. Yeah, that's the abomination of desolation that uh, the Antichrist is going to commit. Uh, I believe at the middle of the tribulation, he's going to break the covenant that he made with Israel. Um, that covenant, it's described in Daniel nine twenty six and 27, how the Antichrist, uh, the final Roman ruler of revived Rome, will confirm that covenant with the people of Israel for seven years, and he'll break it in the midst of the seven-year period, bringing an end to meat offering mm-hmm. and grain offering. So that must mean that the making of the covenant allowed for those things to restart. And when he does that and proclaims himself to be God, setting himself up as God, uh, and Second Thessalonians 2, again, talks much about that, but he'll commit what Daniel calls, he uses this term again in Daniel 12:11, the abomination of desolation. It's reminiscent of what Antiochus Epiphanes did back in the 160s B.C., the set of events that uh, brought about ultimately the the deliverance of the people of Judah and the celebration of Hanukkah. Mm. Um, but this is going to be even much worse than what happened back in that intertestamental time. And we know that it's still future, that these things aren't talking about just the past history, because Jesus, of course centuries after Daniel, talked about the forthcoming abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel and placed it in the future, I believe in the middle of the tribulation. Yes, and that's uh, amazing. That's why we are focused on the Temple Mount in the city of Jerusalem and understanding that uh, there are two more temples in the future, Revelation chapter 11, and then, of course, the temple that Jesus Christ himself builds when he comes back to the earth. Well, Paul, I know we're talking about all these things, but there is a a positive aspect to the future. Praise God, right? Yes. Yeah, you know, Jimmy, that that desolation, it's going to be worked out in in Satan attempting to destroy the Jewish people. Revelation 12 describes that story. Uh, He he wants to prevent the coming of Christ and the final establishment of Christ's kingdom on the earth in the nation of Israel. And in fact, he'll get all the nations on his side. Zechariah tells us twice in Zechariah 
12, verse 3, and then in uh, Zechariah 14, verse 2, that all the nations will be against Jerusalem. But, as you said, there's a wonderful ending to this story. The Lord God, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah of Israel, he's going to deliver and rescue the Jewish people. He is going to save them from the throes of the Antichrist and all the armies of the world gathered against them. He's going to rescue them physically, and that physical rescue will evidence a spiritual rescue um, so that, and this is more complicated in terms of details than we can cover here very briefly, but to sum it all up, Paul says in Romans chapter 11, verse 26, all Israel will be saved. And if people want to study that, they could especially read those chapters, Zechariah 12 through 14, which give uh, many more details. And of course, they include that wonderful reference in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, which tells us that some of the Jewish people, I believe perhaps at the very last millisecond of opportunity, they will look on the one whom they have pierced. They'll mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. And Jimmy, I believe they'll look with the eye of faith and some will be saved perhaps at the very last moment in time. And this will be as Jesus is leading the people of Israel, uh, rescuing them, possibly coming up from Basra, Petra, Isaiah 63, coming up to the Mount of Olives, Zechariah 14.4, coming in triumph, ending the battle of Armageddon and rescuing the Jewish people and the whole nation as it exists at that moment at the end of the tribulation will be saved and all the Jewish people who are alive at that time will be called holy, Isaiah 4.3. I love how you put it, Paul. You said, God has ordained a glorious future for Israel. But there will be many more heartaches until the nation finally embraces Christ. How amazing that we are here to witness these incredible signposts pointing toward the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Great job, Paul. Enjoy your article. And I know our people enjoy it and are using it to study, to teach with, and great information on the program. And yes, The great thing about this is that, uh, you know, the Lord has a way right now for Jewish people to come to know him as their personal Savior, and that is through Jesus Christ, the Son, the same in the future. In the future, not every Jew will have an opportunity or even, you know, a chance, because it says two-thirds of the Jewish people will be wiped out during the tribulation period. So, that's what motivates us right now, Paul, correct? Before the rapture of the church to tell as many as we can about the loving nature of God the Father. Jimmy, that's so true. No Jewish person, and in fact, no Gentile who's listening, Amen. has to even be in that day to face any of this. They can trust in Christ, believe in him who died for their sins and was buried and rose again, trust in Christ alone and be saved today and be with him when he comes to take us home at the rapture of the church. Praise the Lord. Paul, give us your uh, website where we can find more information and articles and uh, even audio files from you. Thank you, Jimmy. It's always such a wonderful blessing and privilege to join you and your audience. 
And people can always connect with me at sermonaudio.com slash P-S-C-H-A-R-F, P-Sharf. And they can find our whole ministry at foi.org. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Paul, thank you so much. Look forward to talking to you again. Thank you, Jimmy. Tremendous privilege and opportunity, and I enjoyed it a lot. Rick, let's continue this half hour of learning with Dr. Paul Weaver, teaching on the subject of the kingdom. Well, that's right, Jimmy. I have a good friend of both yours and mine, Dr. Weaver. Thanks for joining us. It is great. Thank you for the opportunity. I always enjoy uh, ministering with you guys. Appreciate what you all are doing there at Prophecy today. Likewise, likewise. Well, let's uh, get started here. We've had you on the program before, and one of the things you're doing, of course, you're a professor there at Dallas Theological Seminary, but you have a ministry. It's a podcast, which is such an effective way to reach people and to help students of the Bible in general, Bible prophecy in particular as well. And that podcast, the name of it is The Bible and Theology Matters. And I want to give you a chance to talk a little bit more about some of the podcasts. I know you recently just did your 100th podcast. Congratulations on that. Um, But today I want to focus on a three-part series you did on the teaching of the kingdom from the book of Matthew. Can you tell us why you felt the need to do that series and why this teaching is so important? Yeah, great question. I do think the kingdom is so important, right? It comes right from the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 28, when God created man, humanity, he created us in his image, and part of that image bearing is not just attributes. You know, we, we're loving because we have a God that loves. We're creative. We have a God that creates. We're intelligent because we have an intelligent God who can, we can think logically. But, but it goes beyond that, that God created us to rule. And we see that right there in Genesis 1, 26 and 28, when God says, let us, in the Godhead, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and let them rule over the cattle over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps the earth. So uh, right from the beginning, this theme of the kingdom is important because that's what God's created us to do, to rule as his image bearers. And of course, what Adam failed to do as the first Adam, we look forward to the second Adam, Adam, Jesus Christ himself, who, who will rule from the throne of David and we get to rule and reign with him. So it's, it's in my estimation, the most important, the unifying theme of Scripture, starting in Genesis 1, going all the way to Revelation 20, when it's finally realized what God created us to do as his image bearers to rule in his place. And the Gospel of Matthew, there's no greater book in studying the kingdom than this book written to a Jewish audience, the Gospel of Matthew. And it's full of kingdom uh, principles about the coming kingdom. Well, we share your thoughts on the importance of the teaching of the kingdom. I know uh, Jimmy and I were involved with uh, our dad, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, on a documentary that we did in Israel, coming from the north at Caesarea Philippi and all those different places, called Kingdom Come, where we cover some of the similar topics that you're going to talk about today, but it it certainly is uh, something that is so important to get right. Well, in the series, you divide this teaching into three parts, Dr. Weaver. You uh, Essentially, it's the offering— the rejection, and then the postponement of the kingdom. Can you walk us through this progression and highlight what is important for us to understand at each stage? That's great. Thank you for that question. Yes, the offering of the kingdom. By the way, Gospel of Matthew, of the four Gospels, as you know, was written to a Jewish audience. And so a Jewish audience is looking for the king, and they're looking for the kingdom. And 
They want to know that this king has the credentials that's expected of the anointed one to come. And of course, Matthew, right from the beginning, Matthew 1.1 says, this is the genealogy of the Messiah, the son of Abraham, son of David. So Jesus, the Messiah, son of Abraham, son of David. And so then Matthew, right from the beginning, makes it clear that his intent is to cause you to believe that Jesus is the Messiah by believing to accept, to believe, to trust in this, this king that is to come. So Jesus proves that he is who he claims to be early on in the Gospel of Matthew. He makes the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the lame to walk. He speaks and the winds obey him. He speaks and demons shudder in fear. He casts out demons. He raises at least three people from the dead. He performed signs and wonders that authenticated his message that he is who he claimed to be, uh, the anointed one, the son of David, who would reign from the throne of David. And since he proved himself to be the king, he had the right to offer the kingdom to Israel. And so Jesus' message as he comes on the scene is repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In other words, he's saying the kingdom is near because the king is here. So repent has the idea of changing your mind. Right? Change your mind, he's saying to this Jewish audience, uh, change your mind about the way that you think about entrance into and receiving the kingdom. You're not going to enter the kingdom by being a child of Abraham. That's not enough. You're not going to enter the kingdom or receive the kingdom by obeying the law. That's not enough. You're not going to receive the kingdom if you're male by being circumcised. Right? You must humbly receive the king. You must accept by faith, this Messiah. And even before Jesus came on the scene with this message, repent for the kingdom of heaven's at hand, the forerunner, John the Baptist, his cousin, mm. was also preaching that same message. Repent. Change your mind about what you think. It's not going to be your works, your righteousness, your circumcision, you being a child of Abraham. It's accepting the Messiah uh, to enter in this kingdom. So that's the offering the kingdom, and Jesus did that uh, as in his public ministry. Then we have the rejection of the kingdom, of the king, rather. And unfortunately, while there were those who did have faith in the Messiah, many did not. Entire cities rejected him, including Capernaum, Bethsaida, and Chorazin. Um, these were cities located around the Sea of Galilee where Jesus was performing many, many miracles. In fact, no generation and no region of the world had more revelation in terms of miracles and authoritative teaching than these people in these cities where Jesus lived and ministered. So, so many miracles were performed in Capernaum and so many much revelation given that Jesus says in Matthew 11:23 that they will be judged more severely than Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Because they had all of these signs and wonders performed and they had Jesus, the son of God himself, Jesus, fully God, fully man, authenticating himself through these signs and wonders. And so the city of Capernaum uh, rejected him. The cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida also rejected him as the Messiah. Again, these are cities surrounding, as you mentioned, Rick, surrounding the Sea of Galilee, where Jesus was performing all of these many miracles. And so Jesus rebukes them for having all this revelation, all these miracles, and yet rejecting him. And, and uh, Jesus says to Chorazin and Bethsaida, that these cities, the cities of Tyre and Sidon, which were Gentile cities, as you know, Rick, way up north, west in the area known as Phoenicia, right? Northwest of Galilee. These Gentile cities would have repented had they received all the revelation that Chorazin and Bethsaida had. And so Jesus says, 
Woe to you, Bethsaida. If miracles were performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago. And so there's going to be greater judgment for those cities. And then there's really the culmination, I would say, this really uh, movement that uh, turning occurs in Matthew 12 when Jesus is rejected by the religious leaders where they attribute to Jesus the power of Beelzebub. They say you're casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. And this is what we call the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit often also called the unpardonable sin, that Jesus said, this accusation you made, uh, attributing to the Son of God, uh, the second person of the Trinity, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to attribute that work to Beelzebub is a heinous act, and there is no forgiveness for you. And so that event, I think, that really is a transition, a major transition in the Gospel of Matthew from Jesus offering the kingdom to being rejected by entire cities and really culminating in the rejection by these religious leaders uh, representing the Jewish people and saying, we don't want you. You are uh, from the power of Beelzebub doing these works. And so we're going to see a transition then to the postponement of the kingdom, this third phase as we approached the Gospel of Matthew. It's not by chance that after rejection by these entire cities and then especially in Matthew 12 by these religious leaders, that Jesus begins teaching in parables, chapters 13 and on. The kingdom of heaven is like, and then he tells a parable. And this is to hide the truth for these, uh, from these religious leaders and other dissenters and critics, and to real, reveal truth to the disciples. And he'll explain many of these parables to the disciples when he's alone with them. Also, Jesus retreats from the crowds and instructs his disciples, and as you, meant, as you know, Caesarea Philippi, way up there in the north, and Jesus says, only after rejection by these entire cities, and then culminating in the rejection by religious leaders, only then does he say, I will build my church, my ecclesia, first time it's mentioned, well after these rejections. And he says, and the gates of hell will not prevail. So the church is only predicted after the rejection of Jesus, the mystery of the church, that which is not revealed in the Old Testament in detail, becomes a prominent part of Jesus' teaching. And so the church is not the kingdom, not a replacement of the church or some sort of spiritual fulfillment of the promises of the kingdom. The kingdom has been postponed until a later date. And in the meantime, Jesus is building his church with the apostles and prophets as the foundation and Christ himself being the cornerstone. Excellent laying out of the teaching of the kingdom from the book of Matthew, and this is so important to get right. And as we look at this, you have did what you've done just here in just a few minutes. You do in three basically half-hour series, so you go even more in-depth on the podcast, which I certainly encourage our listeners to go to. But understanding Matthew's teaching on the kingdom is so vital to developing a proper view of your theology, but also eschatology and the look at what's going to take place in the future. Those two need to be married together and need to be in coordination. But I know as we talk about the kingdom, there are some widely held views right now, the kingdom including, uh, we could call it the kingdom now movement and dominion theology, which view the teaching of the kingdom differently. Can you talk a little bit about the differences you have with these beliefs and why it's so important that we do get this teaching right? Yeah, that's a great point. And of course, I was emphasizing that Jesus did not introduce the teaching about the church, ecclesia, I'm going to build my ecclesia, my, my assembly, until after the rejection by all these cities 
and especially by the religious leaders in chapter 12. So it's very significant. Ecclesia is not Basileia. Basileia is kingdom in Greek. Ecclesia is church. Uh, we are not building the kingdom, in my estimation, and you'll never hear me use that language. And it's often, you know, Christianese, and you'll, you'll hear it a lot, right? We're building the kingdom. And no, for, uh, from my vantage point and yours as well, and many of your listeners, the kingdom is entirely future. The church is not the kingdom in whole, which is all millennialism, right? There's no need for a literal 1,000-year reign of Christ. That's all millennialism, that the kingdom is a fulfillment of those promises. I know the church is not the kingdom in whole or even in part. I, I don't, I'm not a progressive dispensationalist that says the kingdom has been inaugurated in part, but it's going to have a fuller realization in the future. Now, as I understand this progress of Revelation, starting in Genesis 1, uh, 26 to 28, all the way to Revelation 20, that the kingdom has been rejected. It's been temporarily postponed, but we look forward to the day when Christ is going to return. And we know that biblically that's after the tribulation, that's after the rapture of the church. Rapture of the church, seven years of tribulation, Christ is going to return at the end of the tribulation period to establish a kingdom that's going to be a righteous kingdom. 1,000 years, mentioned six times, as you know, Revelation 20 and in the scope of just a few verses, 1,000-year uh, reign of Christ, where the second Adam, Jesus Christ, will rule, a righteous kingdom will be installed, and what a great privilege. He shares that with us, that we get to rule and reign with him, and we look forward to the day where we will have a righteous king, and where evil will be judged, and faithfulness and followers of Christ will be rewarded. Dr. Weaver, my dad always used to say that words have meaning, and when you talk about the kingdom, there is certainly a lot of meaning there, and this is something that is so central, as I said, to our theology from the very beginning in Genesis all the way through Revelation. It is so important that you understand it, that you get it right, and that you use that term properly as we go forward, because it can be confusing, and it's something you need to understand. Well, I appreciate you laying that out for us, and I appreciate the podcast that goes even deeper deeper into depth. And again, I mentioned to those that are interested, we have a documentary shot on location in Israel with very similar teaching as well, if you'd like to go to our bookstore. Well, Dr. Paul Weaver, the Dallas Theological Seminary, thank you for your friendship and thank you for your commitment to helping the student of the Bible and the student of Bible prophecy to grow and develop through proper theology, proper hermeneutics. Your commitment is is excellent. And of course, like I said, I encourage our listeners to go to your website at BibleandTheologyMatters.com. Dr. Weaver, thank you so much, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. I look forward to it as well. I've really enjoyed this. Thank you, Dr. Weaver. Well, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, our Legacy Series with Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, starting a new section on the book of Ezekiel, right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung, Jr. Along with Rick, we've been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Great last half hour, great hour of the program so far. Hope you stick with us too, where we have a discussion at the end of the program with a look at the book. But Rick, you mentioned after your interview with Paul Weaver, our video, Kingdom Come. Why don't you tell the folks how they can get that? Jimmy, if you go to our website at prophecytoday.com, you go to our bookstore, you'll see that video. There's also some audio teaching, a CD series that our father, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, did on the teaching of the kingdom. It's so important 
that we get that right. Jimmy, you can also go to our website and go to our daily devotionals. You look at that, that's free to look at. And you can also see, go to the book of Matthew and look at some of the teaching that is there in the devotionals from the book of Matthew. But this is something that will help you to have a proper view of theology, of eschatology, and to help you to study the scripture. You do that all that at our website, prophecytoday.com. And of course, if you do go to our website, if you do appreciate our ministry, we would appreciate your prayers and your financial support as well. Excellent, Rick. Thanks so much. Well, our legacy series, which is in honor of our father, Dr. Jimmy DeYoung, who did this program for so many years. Today, we're going to continue our journey of learning about God's plan through the ages, and we bring the prophecy of a great man of God to the table for this study. This man of God that I'm speaking about is the prophet Ezekiel an ancient Jewish prophet who was also a priest. More on that in just a moment. The book of Ezekiel deals with the past and future prophecy for God's chosen people, the Jewish people. Ezekiel is a unique man with a unique ministry. He is actually the very first street preacher. We'll start our study today in Ezekiel chapter 1. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. All right, the book of Ezekiel is one of the three most important books in the entire Bible as it relates to Bible prophecy. Now, I'm not trying to put down the minor prophets like Nahum, Zephaniah, Obadiah, Habakkuk, and some of those. I'm not trying to put them down. Everything is God's Word, and so that's very important. But when you start to study Bible prophecy, you can take three books in the Bible and find in these three books every single prophetic event that's going to happen in the future. And it's based upon the fact that there are three members of the human family. And those three members of the human family, and this is key to understanding any approach to studying the Bible. The three members of the human family are Gentiles, Jews, and Christians. For the first 2,000 years of human history, there were only Gentiles upon the earth. And then from that point in Genesis chapter 12, which would be the end of 2,000 years, to Acts chapter 1, the second 2,000 years, there were Gentiles and Jews. And from Acts chapter 2 to Revelation 22, the third member of the human family, Gentiles, Jews, and Christians. Now it's key. All of Scripture is written and is information that we need to know. It's given by God. The Holy Spirit breathed into man everything that was worthy for our understanding of doctrine, for instruction in righteousness, etc., etc. You know what 2 Timothy 3.16 says as well as I. But when you start to study, you have to understand these three members of the human family, God has a program for them. He will make sure that program is fulfilled. For example, the first strand of the human family was Gentiles. The book of Daniel starts at a certain time in history. It starts at the times of the Gentiles. And that's when Daniel was taken in to the Babylonian captivity. There in the Babylonian captivity, the Lord used him as a prophet to lay out the times of the Gentiles. The times of the Gentiles starting when Daniel was taken into captivity, 605 B.C., and extends all the way to the second coming of Jesus Christ. You might remember Jesus in the book of Luke, chapter 21, and verse 24. He said that Jerusalem shall be trodden down by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. That's what Daniel's about. Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7. It's talking about the times of the Gentiles. And the definition for that phrase, any time in history when Gentiles control two things, the Jewish people 
and the city of Jerusalem. And that's why Jesus said, Jerusalem shall be trodden down by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. And so Daniel is that timeline laid out in history from Daniel's taking into the captivity until Jesus Christ comes back. And that's that in Daniel chapter 2, that stone that hits the image of the man, burst it into pieces, and the stone becomes a mountain, which is representing the kingdom of the Lord. The second group of peoples, the Jewish people, come into existence, Abraham. Abraham would have been basically the first Jew. Howbeit he was a Gentile, but he became the father of the Jewish people, not the father of the Arab people. He became the father of the Jewish people, and his son Isaac, the son of promise, was confirmation of the fact that God had made a promise to Abraham. There in the, uh, the 26th chapter of the book of uh, Genesis, God confirms to Isaac, son of Abraham, the fact that he indeed would be the confirmation of what God had done, giving Abraham the Abrahamic covenant. And then along comes the son Jacob, whose name is changed to Israel. There in uh, chapter 13 of the book of Genesis, Abraham is called a Hebrew. His grandson Jacob is called Israel. And then his great-grandson Judah is the first time they use the word Jew, 1 Kings 16, verse 6, and then the peoples became known as Jewish people. So they're either Hebrews, Israelites, or Israelis, and or Jews. And that starts the second strand. And that's from chapter 12 of Genesis all the way over to chapter 1 of the book of Acts. In chapter 2, those Jews and Gentiles who have trusted Christ. Now in chapter 2 of Acts, there were no Gentiles who had trusted Christ because that did not take place for about almost 20 years later at Caesarea when Cornelius was the first Gentile to receive Christ. But when Paul wrote Ephesians, he wrote chapter 2, verses 11 to 15, that only two people would become Christians and they would be Jews or Gentiles. Oh, by the way, that's all the people there are on the earth. And so those people that are Christians, we either have come from a background of being a Jew or a Gentile. And there's no, nothing else. A Messianic Jew is a wrong terminology. And Christians are in existence from the day of Pentecost all the way to the rapture of the church. Before that, there were no Christians. After that, there will be no Christians who become Christians. Christians will live forever. We will be the bride of Christ. And so this is the context in, in which we now look at the book of Ezekiel because Ezekiel is looking at a timeline for the Jewish people. Ezekiel was the leader of the second group of Jews that were taken into the Babylonian captivity. About 597 B.C., the text tells us, if you read the first couple of chapters of the book of Ezekiel, that God took Ezekiel and about 10,000 Jews and they took them over to Babylon. Now, they didn't actually go into the city of Babylon. They went out to Tel Aviv. Not the Tel Aviv that you know about here in Israel, but the Tel Aviv that was on the Chabar River, a tributary off the Euphrates River over near what we know as modern-day Iraq. And that's where Ezekiel went. At that time when Ezekiel, and by the way, Ezekiel was not only a prophet, his first office was that of priest. In chapter 1, it says at 30 years of age, he had just qualified to be a priest. Any Jewish man who is from the tribe of Levi, 
a part of the family of the Kohanim, or the priestly family, would study for 28 years, from two years of age to 30 years of age. They would study and basically understand the entire book of Leviticus from front to back and just had it in their mind. That's how they were to understand. First seven chapters of the book of Leviticus would be the sacrificial system laid out for them. In chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11, their qualifications had to be met because there were the qualifications for the priesthood. And then from chapter 12 to 27, how they would operate and worship in a temple or a tabernacle at that time, and then later on a temple. Ezekiel had qualified, and he's one of three of the prophets that were also priests. Ezekiel was one, Jeremiah was the second one, and Zechariah was the third one. These men had the unique responsibility of being a priest, but then also serving God as a prophet. And God selects Ezekiel and makes him a prophet. If you have chapter 2, I want to show you something here in chapter 2. He's going to make him a prophet. Look at verse 3 of chapter 2. And he said unto me, Son of man, and by the way, that phrase used a number of times in the book of Ezekiel, and it's used 93 times for the purpose of describing Ezekiel. Now, remember in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as the Son of Man, but here in the book of Ezekiel, 93 times when, he, when it says Son of Man, he's talking about Ezekiel. Again in verse 3 of chapter 2, And he said unto me, Son of Man, I send thee to the children of Israel, to a rebellious nation that hath rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me even until this very day. So he selected this priest who's going to make him, he's going to be made a prophet, and he is going to go to the Jewish people. In the context of chapter 2, you'll see, look, they're going to make fun of you, Ezekiel. They're going to laugh at you. They're going to mock you, but don't worry about it. They're a hard-headed people. And he says, I'm going to make your head harder. Look at verse 8 of chapter 3. Behold, I have made thy face strong against their faces, and thy forehead strong against their foreheads, as an animate Harder than flint have I made thy forehead. Fear them not, neither be dismayed at their looks, though they be a rebellious house. So he made Ezekiel with a harder head than these hard-headed Jews. And that's not, a, that's not an anti-Semitic statement that I'm making. That's what God said about the Jewish people. And that's why he selected this man uh, to be a prophet against them, uh, to them rather. Look in chapter 3 and verse 17. He calls him a watchman. Now look at the definition of a watchman, verse 17, chapter 3. Son of man, I have made thee a watchman. And I think we would all, should all, at least, eagerly want to be watchmen. Look, notice what it says. I have made thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore, hear the word at my mouth and give them warning from me. What happens is, you hear the word from the Lord, you warn the people of what is coming ahead. Should we all not be watchmen, especially in the day in which we're living? Hear the word of the Lord and warn the people. Let me tell you what he did. Now, this is almost ironic. It almost, to some extent, is funny because he's going to make him an Ezekiel, and I'll show you in a moment he's going to be the first street preacher uh, that was ever involved in ministry, and he tells him he wants them, him to be a prophet to all of his people, but then he makes him dumb, not dumb, stupid, but dumb can't talk. Look here in verse 26 of chapter 3. And I will make thy tongue cleave to the roof of thy mouth, and thou shalt be dumb. And so he tells this man to be a prophet, and then he makes him so he can't talk. And later on you read that all that Ezekiel is going to be able to say 
during a seven-year period of time is what the Lord puts in his heart and mind, and then he opens his mouth to say. That is the extent of what Ezekiel is going to be able to say. Yet he's a prophet. If you know anything about a prophet, he's supposed to be pronouncing prophetic truth or truth of what's the judgment to come going to be. And Ezekiel's going to do that, but in unique ways. He tells him to lay in the street. I said he's going to be a street preacher. He literally tells him to lay in the street. In chapter 4, that's what he tells him. Look at verse 5. For I have laid upon thee the years of their iniquity according to the number of the days. 390 days, so shall thou bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. And then thou shalt have, have accomplished them. Lie again on thy right side, and thou shalt bear the iniquity for the house of Judah 40 days. 390 days he lays on his left side in the middle of the street, 40 days on his right side, 430 days he's laying in the street. Now what kind of a prophet is this? He has no capability of speaking unless the Lord loosens his tongue. He's laying in the middle of the street for 430 days. And so he tells this man to be a prophet and then he makes him so he can't talk. And later on you read that all that Ezekiel is going to be able to say during a seven-year period of time is what the Lord puts in his heart and mind, and then he opens his mouth to say. That is the extent of what Ezekiel is going to be able to say. Yet he's a prophet. If you know anything about a prophet, he's supposed to be pronouncing prophetic truth or truth of what's the judgment to come going to be. And Ezekiel's going to do that, but in unique ways. Ezekiel is a unique prophet with a unique prophecy, and he will indeed do his ministry in a unique way. For much of this prophet's ministry, he will lay in the street and become God's first street preacher. And as a prophet, Ezekiel will not be able to speak unless the Lord opens his mouth and speaks through him, and he will be used mightily by the Lord. Next week, we will continue our study of Ezekiel, and we'll see how the Lord uses this man of God. We'll study the secret of the success of Ezekiel's ministry. Please join us then. Dr. Jimmy DeYoung and the Legacy Series. We have to take a break, and when we come back, Rick and I will take a look at the book right here on Prophecy Today Weekend. Kramer with Mission Network News. A new report from the Institute of International Finance says the Gaza war is edging the Middle East closer to a regional conflict that would significantly impact the global economy. Trey Holsey, a consultant to ministries in the Middle East, says this escalated regional conflict is really paramilitary groups or proxies. It gets very messy, complex and complicated because you have many different actors in this situation and each of them have their own interests that override what their controlling party wants. Ask the Lord to protect believers. War fosters instability, which increases the risk of religious persecution. A good example would be Syria. When this, this government of Syria broke down and wasn't able to control parts of the country, ISIS could do things that we view as horrific. And finally, God uses our life experiences in unexpected ways. Dave McIntyre, the director of Global Ministries at Set Free, served as a church planner in Brazil for 15 years. 
I've always wondered what the Lord was going to do with that now that I'm back in ministry. McIntyre recently connected with another organization that invited him to use his fluency in Portuguese to help them translate their own materials. He now has contacts in multiple Portuguese-speaking countries in Africa and is translating set-free resources into Portuguese for those he's personally training. The idea is that these ministries would be able to then train their own people and expand the ministry of spiritual freedom. Pray for set-free and find your place in the story at missionnews.org. If you know anybody who is looking for this kind of ministry training in the Portuguese language, have them get in touch with me. Thanks for listening to Mission Network News, a service of One Way Ministries. We're listener supported by people just like you. So by giving to Mission Network News, you enable us to keep the stories of God's kingdom coming. And together, the Great Commission happens. Look for links at missionnews.org. That's missionnews.org. I'm Ruth Kramer. Welcome back to Prophecy Today. I'm Jimmy DeYoung Jr. Along with Rick, we've been examining current events in the light of God's prophetic word. Uh, Rick, you know, every week when we do this program, I know we've talked about this before. You know, we we pick important events that are happening, and they all relate to future events in Bible prophecy. As we talked with Paul Scharf today, the next thing to happen on God's calendar is a this disappearing church that will be off the earth. And then there will be certain things that we have talked about over the last couple of weeks that are listed really in Matthew chapter 24 about what will take place in the future. And it's all through, it's a timeline of Bible prophecy. But again, you know, and then we talked to Dr. Paul Weaver about the kingdom, which I thought was very fascinating. So Let's just kind of, you and I just have a conversation here uh, as we take a look at the book today. Jimmy, I think that's a great idea. As we do take a look at current events and things that are going on in the world, and of course we focus on Israel because we know and we believe that God has a plan for Israel in the future. So I have many questions that I could talk to you about today, but let's start with this one, Jimmy. As we look at Israel, we look at uh, what they're facing against the Iranian-backed Hamas in Gaza, the Iranian-backed Hezbollah in the north, and we uh, we look at the Jewish people. We know that there's a future for the Jewish people. We look at the verses of the Bible, Genesis 12, where it talks about those who bless Israel, I will bless you, and those who dishonor you, I will curse you. And these are things, Jimmy, how are we as Christians, how should we support Israel? What should we be doing? This is the political state of Israel. This is course of not Israel in the tribulation, after the tribulation, after they have come to salvation in Jesus Christ. So can you talk a little bit about that, Jimmy, as we look at our support for the state of Israel? Yeah, that's a very good question, Rick. You know, and there are a lot of people that are, you know, opening and and really supporting the Jewish people. And certainly, October 7th, as I talked about with Paul, uh, was a, a, you know, a signpost or one of those mileposts in history that we have seen and we feel for the Jewish people, those of us that are believers and how we understand Bible prophecy, uh, that God has a program for the Jewish people in the future. They are going to suffer more persecution uh, in the tribulation period. We've talked about that often, that seven-year tribulation period, the time of Jacob's trouble, when in the first three and a half years, they'll have an opportunity to rebuild the temple. 
They'll have two wise sages, men from the Bible, teaching on the Temple Mm. Mount in the city of Jerusalem, the two witnesses for the first three and a half years of the tribulation period. There will be 144,000 male virgin Jews, according to Revelation chapter 14 and Revelation chapter 7, where those Jews come from, which tribes they come from. 12,000 men from the 12 tribes of Israel will become evangelists and will go not only to the Jewish people, but to everyone on the earth because all believers will be gone because of the rapture of the church. Let's get back to your question. Your question was, how should we support Israel? The best way to bless a Jewish person today is not through money. It's not really through physical help, although those are important. Uh, But the best way that we can support them today is by telling them about God's way of salvation, his plan of salvation through the death of his son. Not only the death of a Jewish Messiah, a Jewish man who lived on this earth. Some call him a rabbi, right? He was a teacher. He had students. He had those 12 disciples, plus many more that followed him. But not only through his death, but how he died on the cross. He was buried for three days and three nights, and that's what he told his disciples what would happen and that he would raise again. So, You know, what happened before his death, what happened at his death, what happened after his death all came true. And that's what Jesus said. I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's no way to the Father except through me. Jesus Christ is the only way for us today as Gentiles to get to heaven and for the Jewish people to get to heaven. There's nothing they can do, no works, no good deeds, no obeying the 613 laws that they would have to to work their way into heaven. They can have an assurance of going to heaven. So today, the biggest support you can give is by telling your Jewish friend, your Jewish neighbor, going to Israel and telling them. Now that, I will guarantee you, Rick, you and I are are witnesses to going to Israel and telling them about Jesus Christ as their Messiah sometimes doesn't end well. But (laughs) that's the best way to really to bless the Jewish person today and prepare them for the future to prepare them to be a part of the bride of Christ and to be ruling and reigning in the future kingdom that Paul Weaver talked about on the program. And everything really hinges around this promised kingdom in the future. So when you, we look at the Jewish people, yes, they're not the state. And, you know, you talk to any of our Friends of Israel ministries, um, they're, you know, they're very much involved you know, the Jewish people today are not where God wants them to be. Daniel chapter 9, the 70th week of Daniel, is for that reason to establish the holy place in the city of Jerusalem, to end the iniquity, to uh, bring in the everlasting righteousness, and to bring the Jewish people to an understanding that Jesus is their Messiah, and he will rule and reign over them in the future. I hope that answers your question. Does that make it clear? It certainly does. It places it in context as we look at the situation. That is what we are to do, not only to our Jewish friends, but to all those that we meet to share the gospel. Of course, putting it in context as we look at the overall situation, we look at God's plan for the Jews, the Gentiles, and the Christians, that certainly does 
put it into the overall picture of what God is trying to do with us in the world today. Rick, thanks so much. We'll continue to focus on events that are happening around the world in the light of God's biblical prophecy that he has given to us. We'll focus on the Jewish people and God's role for the Jewish people in the future because that's how we understand how all of Bible prophecy will come to fruition in the future. Well, thank you, Rick, for doing the hard work, and I look forward to being with you again next week. Folks, with everything that we've seen today, we thank you so much for joining with us. And again, thank the radio stations for carrying this program. But we need to be living a pure, productive, prepared life for the rapture of the church. Let's keep looking up until. Thank you so much for joining us today. This is Jay Johnson inviting you to join us again next week for more of Prophecy Today. Prophecy Today is a listener-supported production of Shofar Communications in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Mm -hmm.